If you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here. We're in a summer series called Old Testament Postcards, and we're taking a look at the shortest of the minor prophets. And today we are in the book of Habakkuk. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your scriptures to the book of Habakkuk. I'll give you about 15 minutes to find it. Habakkuk is one of my favorite of the minor prophets, by the way, Um, and and we really don't know much about him. We don't know anything about his life, about his parentage, uh, really anything about his history other than what he has written, but it is a powerful book. Habakkuk, as we understand it, spent his life and probably a bulk of his ministry kind of bridging the past and the future of the nation of Judah. Uh, I, I, I could tell you that Habakkuk lived through the highs and the lows of that period of Bible history. He knew what it was to experience the good times. He knew what it was like to experience the tough times. Uh, undoubtedly, part of his life was spent growing up under the reign of King Josiah. Josiah was undoubtedly the finest king since the time of King David. Now, there were good kings along the way, but there was something about Josiah who brought the people back to God, who unearthed the forgotten word of God, who led in spiritual renewal and great revival at a time when Judah really needed it. These were the spiritual mountaintop experiences in these closing days of the existence of Judah. And then when he died, when the king died in a battle against the Egyptians, the nation of Judah reverted to its former self of leaving God out of the picture. And so, spiritually speaking, we could say that Habakkuk knew what it was like to be on the mountaintops, and Habakkuk knew what it was like to journey through the valleys. I think many of us can relate to Habakkuk and his life. I I grew up in a great time of of American history, I believe. (laughs) I was born in 55, and so I was growing up through the 60s. And I know, I know, the 1960s were really a turbulent time, in, in some respects a very difficult time in American history, but the church still seemed strong and was a, for the most part, respected part of our culture. There was a safe, uh, the sense of safety for a boy and his bicycle, whether it was on a paper route or whether it was riding the bike out to the county airport, times were simpler. And even people who didn't attend church back in that day and time, for the most part, lived by the moral code that was reflected in God's Word. In some respects, I I think I have lived through some great times in our nation's history. With our nation's birthday just yesterday, I'm reminded that many of our colonial leaders were strong men and women of faith. Uh, let Let me give you just a couple quotes. James Madison, our fourth president, said, A watchful eye must be kept on ourselves, lest while we are building ideal monuments of renown and bliss here, we neglect to have our names enrolled in the annals of heaven. Uh, James Madison, our fourth president. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry. Instrumental, by the way, in ensuring that we had a bill of rights in the Constitution to protect our individuality and our individual freedoms. Patrick Henry said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Didn't get too much clearer than that. Now, I'm not saying that all Americans at that day and time were Christians or that this nation was somehow 
to be the equivalent of the Old Testament Israel in modern times. I'm not saying that at all. There were unbelievers, of course, in, as a part of our nation, but our Christian heritage is much stronger than many would have us believe today. If you don't believe that, look at what Congress said in 1854. Now, it's not quite 100 years after the founding of our nation, but it's way down the road. This, this came out of the Judiciary Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives. They made this statement, quote, 1854, had the people during the revolution had a suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. That's Congress saying that nearly a century after its founding. The spiritual climate of our world, however, is changing which makes Habakkuk relevant to our 21st century. As a matter of fact, when you read through the book of Habakkuk, it's hard to believe that this book is 2,600 years old. I, I like Habakkuk because he asks God the tough questions. As a matter of fact, if you look at the headings of the New, New International Version, I don't know what version you're reading out of this morning, but if you look at the NIV translation, you will see this, Habakkuk's complaint, chapter 1, chapter 2, Habakkuk's second complaint. And I know some of you are thinking already this morning, oh good, finally someone in the Bible who likes to complain like I do. I wouldn't go quite that far to equivocate, uh, equivocate that with, with Habakkuk. Uh, you know, this is, this is a great congregation. You, you all are a wonderful people. And, and, and I would say that I, I believe you to be head and shoulders above the rest when it comes to positive attitudes. But occasionally, someone will write a note of complaint or register a complaint. And, and that's okay, especially when the intent is to be helpful, not hurtful. The only ones that really frustrate me are the anonymous complaints that come in every once in a while. And, and, and the reason they frustrate me is because when somebody doesn't sign a complaint, there may be a very good answer, and most of the time there is, but you can't respond when you don't know who wrote it. Because you see, I think there is a right way and a wrong way to register a complaint, and Habakkuk does it the right way. Sometimes we don't do it the right way. A young man entered a particularly strict monastery to prepare for the priesthood. It was so strict that they were not allowed to speak at all, period, except for on their 10th anniversaries. Every 10 years, they could speak two words to the head of the monastery. So this young man went to work, worked hard, worked hard. Uh, at the end of his first 10 years, he got the opportunity to say two words, and his two words were, bed hard. Went back to work, second 10 years rolled around, he got his opportunity for two words, and he said, food bad. <laughs> Went back to work. At the end of his third decade, he came to the head of the monastery and he said his two words, I quit. <laughs> the head of the monastery said, well, I'm not surprised. All you've done for the last 30 years is complain. <laughs> There's a right way and a wrong way to complain. Habakkuk knew the right way to register his concerns, and he takes his concerns directly to the Lord. With the nation in spiritual decline, Habakkuk had been praying for a new revival. Habakkuk had been seeking the Lord 
for something that had happened under Josiah's reign to happen again in the land of Judah. But much to Habakkuk's disappointment, revival did not come. Now look at what Habakkuk wrote in verse 2 of chapter 1. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Wow. Tell me you haven't had those feelings. Tell me that when you got fired from a job or a romance that you hoped would blossom into a lasting relationship exploded before your very eyes, or that for all of your best efforts you could not work yourself out of financial trouble. Tell me you haven't begged God for relief, and from your perspective, it never came. You've done all the right things. You've been faithful in your worship and service. You've been a good neighbor. You've loved others and you've loved God. But God, where in the world are you when I need you? How could you let these things happen to me? I I can't believe that there's not a soul in this room who at some point in time hasn't felt that way. Whether you verbalize it to God is another thing. Habakkuk did. And And I love him for asking the tough questions that we want to ask and for which we would love to have answers. He gets it. (laughs) Are you ready for God's answer? Verse 5, look at the nations and watch. You will be utterly amazed, Habakkuk, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. Oh boy, this was not the answer Habakkuk was hoping for. He is stunned. He is incredulous. Habakkuk says, wait a minute, Lord. I get the fact that we as Judah, your people, deserve to be disciplined. I I get the fact that we've fallen away from you and we need to be punished. But really, Lord, you're going to use the Babylonians, that nasty nation who is far worse than we are, to punish us? God, I just don't get this. I like this guy, Habakkuk. How about you? He's asking the questions in a way that says, God, I I need to have some answers. And here's what I want you to know. God likes this guy too. Habakkuk is his man for the hour. He is his preacher. The Lord is not offended at the honest and heartfelt questions and readily gives Habakkuk answers. They're not the ones that Habakkuk wants, but God responds to him. And then notice the second complaint or concern. Verse 12. Oh, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh, rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you notice how how beautifully... Habakkuk describes God, everlasting God, holy one, my rock, too pure to look on evil, cannot tolerate wrong. 
a powerful and accurate description of God. And so then the question comes, so why are you tolerating the wrong? Why are you putting up with all of this stuff, God? This, this is not your character, God. Why aren't you destroying those who are trying to destroy us? And you can read this afternoon, I hope you will, through the rest of Habakkuk. And God's answer in chapter 2 basically boils down to this. Habakkuk, don't worry. I've got it all taken care of. I've got everything under control. I will purify my people through this process so that they will come back stronger. And I will destroy the nation of Babylon in my time. So how does Habakkuk handle all this? He still doesn't understand it, still doesn't get it, doesn't like the answer. So how does he deal with it? As a matter of fact, I would ask you, how do you deal with it? When you go through these kinds of periods of time in your life, do, do you just kind of throw up your hands and say, I'm done. I don't have an answer. I'm out of here. May I suggest that we handle it like Habakkuk handled it? And, and I'm just going to give you a few thoughts of, of when life is frustrating and when it seems like God has answers that you're, you're not looking for or when it seems like God has just kind of vacated your part of history, then follow what Habakkuk did. Here, here, here we go. Stop and think. But before, before Habakkuk registered his second complaint, he stopped and thought about the God that he was serving this great and, and majestic God, the eternal one, the holy one, the rock. He's, he's thinking about all these marvelous attributes of God so he doesn't lose heart in the answers that he's received. Now, I would suggest to you, when you get frustrated in life, when you think that God has abandoned you, stop and think. Now, I love this phrase, be utterly amazed. Now, and what God was using it there, he said, I'm going to amaze you, Habakkuk. You're not going to believe what I'm up to. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to bring my punishment. And Habakkuk said, oh, my goodness, Lord, that, that wicked, nasty nation. Yes, be utterly amazed. But that's not the only way we are utterly amazed at God. There are so many more powerful ways to be utterly amazed. Just look around you. Check out these pictures from the Hubble telescope. Only in our lifetime, in our recent lifetime, have we had glimpses into the depths of the universe that God created. Aren't, aren't those majestic, beautiful pictures? I am utterly amazed when I look at these scenes of the handiwork and the creative genius of our God. I am utterly amazed at the beauty that he has created and, and, and speaking of beauty, it speaks to a designer. Only a designer adds beauty for the sake of beauty. An architect can design a functional square box to meet most needs for people to live in or businesses to conduct business in. But an architect, the designer, builds beauty into the building so it speaks of his creative genius. It wasn't necessary for the function of the building, but it adds to the overall appeal. I think one of the greatest perspectives on the creative genius of God is the beauty that is around us. Look at everything that is beautiful about this world. God didn't have to do it that way. He could have made it just very functional and plain, but he didn't. He created it with great beauty. For instance, just take a look at the peacock feather. 
Do you know that the peacock feather was one of the things that troubled Darwin in his development of the evolutionary theory? He could not explain that because there is no apparent reason for the beauty of the peacock feather. It, it, it is not functional. There's no clear purpose in it. And you say, well, maybe it attracts the female. No, the female's eyes are not capable of understanding or seeing the nuances of, of the peacock feather. It is, it is there apparently as beauty for the sake of beauty. Random mutations don't do that. A designer does. That the peacock feather has got layer after layer after layer after layer of, of keratin, this protein that is a part of our skin, and it is such fine layers that what it does is it reflects the light in an iridescent manner. When you look at a peacock feather from different angles, the colors change. Peacock can't distinguish that, but we can. It's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly complex. Beauty for the sake of beauty. Only God. Only God could utterly amaze us in the fall of the year by taking leaves that are dying and give them brilliant color to amaze us on the hillsides of southern Indiana. Be utterly amazed. Stop and think. When you get discouraged and frustrated with the way God is working or apparently not working in your life, be utterly amazed. Stop and think at his greatness. And I'm going to ask you this. If God will do all of these things for the beauty of his creation, would he then abandon us the crown of his creation? Would God allow his son to die for us and then just abandon us? Of course not. Stop and think. Here's the second thing. Remember, history, no matter how it seems at the moment, is under God's control and follows a divine plan. There, there is this divine storyline. Everything is good in the beginning. Sin enters. Everything is broken. God sends the cure through his son who suffers in our place. And the end of the story is that we win and we enter an eternal place called heaven. That's the storyline of history, and, and it's God's storyline, and he is involved in every aspect of that history, even when we can't see him at work. And Habakkuk is right. There are some things that God will not tolerate. At least three times in this first chapter, he uses the word, God, you can't tolerate sin. God, you can't look at sin. God, you won't tolerate that kind of behavior. Uh, it's a great word, and Habakkuk is right. God won't tolerate that. It's a word we hear a lot about today, tolerant, tolerate. But, but some have hijacked the word and twisted its original design. Tolerance today means to consider every individual's beliefs, value system, lifestyle, and truth claims as all equally valid. There is no disagreement. Everybody is on an equal playing field. Folks, I got to tell you, by the very nature of the word tolerate or tolerance, it suggests disagreement. Tolerance is unnecessary if we don't disagree. If you and I are on the same team, tolerance isn't necessary. The very word suggests disagreement. Today, however, tolerance says it is morally wrong to say that something is morally wrong. 
Is that not vocabulary? Gymnastics? And here's, here's why. Because our world does not want to admit to absolute truth. That there is absolute truth. And, and if there is, then we must obey it. But if there's no absolute truth, then everybody's truth is equal truth. And that's where the problem comes. Because you see, Habakkuk is hanging on to God's absolute truth. I've heard Alan Phillips say, if there is no absolute truth, if absolute truth is not important, there's no need for referees to consult instant replays to change calls in football games and basketball games. We all want absolute truth, but there is a moral absolute truth, and that's what Habakkuk is dealing with, is God's absolute truth. And here's the point. God may be patient. God is slow to anger, but God will not ultimately tolerate rebellion against him or his word. You know what biblical tolerance is? <laughs> Let me describe it to you this way. Jerry Clower, a Christian comedian from Mississippi in the past, whose size would have made you think he was a professional football player, told the story of his son who was a a kicker on the football team in his high school. And he said that in a very tense part of a game, which could have determined the outcome of the game, they sent his son in to kick a field goal, and his kick went wide of the, of the goal post. And a man about four rows in front of where Jerry Clower was sitting jumped up and began to shake his fist and heckle loudly, who's that kicker anyway? He couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with a football. And he went on and on and on, railing against Jerry's son. Clara said, I took all of it I could, and then I made my way through the crowd, sat down next to that guy, looked him right in the eye, and said, you need to thank Jesus you're still alive. <laughs> the guy said, what do you mean? And Clara said, that's my son you're ridiculing, and the only reason you're not dead right now is because I'm a Christian, and Jesus won't let me kill you. <laughs> that's tolerance. Great divide, great disagreement, but saying, okay, we will work together. We will get along. God is right in the midst of history and showing great restraint, but the day will come when history will unfold God's final plan, when God will not tolerate rebellion against him any more. Here's a third thing. Spend time in God's Word. You know the old, old expression, misery loves company? <laughs> okay, when you're miserable, start looking through the stories of the Bible. Look at the people in God's Word, and you will discover that from the very beginning of time, even those who served God completely and wholeheartedly went through tough times. Joseph of the Old Testament lied to uh, and lied about and sold by his brothers and put in prison for 13 years for something he didn't do. All of that turmoil and heartache before God brought him out on the other side and used him. Even Jesus didn't get his prayer in the garden answered when he said, Lord, if there's another way, let's find that other way. And God says, there is no other way, son. The cross is before you. If, if misery loves company, and I think it does, then, then just spend some time in God's Word and you'll see that your life is not much different than the lives of people throughout God's Word that God has always worked in ways that people couldn't quite understand for the ultimate purpose of his plan. He's in control. He's got our backs. Stop and read his word, and you'll get that more clearly. Last thing, in your doubts, commit the problem to God in faith. 
Do you know what the key word or the key verse is in the book of Habakkuk? It's chapter 2, verse 4, and it says, but the righteous will live by faith. That means we keep on going even when we cannot see what is ahead. It means we keep on going trusting God even when we can't explain what is happening around us. The righteous will live by faith. This This verse so impacted the Apostle Paul, he quotes it twice in his writings, and the writer of the book of Hebrews includes it as well. This is the heartbeat of the story of God. The righteous will live by faith. And the back it says, okay, God, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I'm going to live by faith. He said, I'm going to the watchtower. The watchtower was one of these towers that they built in the vineyard where they stayed on watch. He said, I'm going to go up to that watchtower where I'm all alone, and I'm just going to keep watching and waiting to see how you will work in our lives. Habakkuk didn't know the answers, couldn't quite understand God's plan, was puzzled by God's choices, but he still knew that God alone was the answer. He prayed, and he lived by faith. Can I tell you this? When you have stopped and thought, and when you have plumbed the depths of God's Word, and you still are uncomfortable with the explanation or the answers or the puzzles that you're dealing with, when you cannot come to grips with what is happening in your life or in the world or the culture or what God is up to, let me tell you this. Here is the bottom line. Live by faith because you know that the God of heaven is at work even when you can't see him. So just keep living by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Here is my favorite passage in Habakkuk. When it gets tough, don't give up. Mark this one in your Bible. It closes the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. When you can't see the end picture, you just keep hanging on to him, living by faith. I love that. When everything else is falling apart, God, I still find my joy in you. I'm amazed, utterly amazed at the countless stories that come out of the colonial days of our nation's history. A lot of names that we don't even talk about much anymore. Robert Morris is one of those, uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence, signer of the Constitution. Do you realize we wouldn't be here without Robert Morris? In the midst of the Revolutionary War, when the continental money was absolutely worthless, Robert Morris, out of his own pocket, paid our continental army. In 1781, when we as a fledgling nation were $25 million in debt and on the brink of destruction, it was Robert Morris who stepped up and out of his own pocket made our country solvent and saved us. We are here today because of the financial resolve of Robert Morris. By the way, he died bankrupt and penniless. Didn't live to see how this all would pan out. 
But I suspect if he knew what America had done over the last 240 years and who we are and what's happened and the difference that's been made around the world, I think he would say it was worth every penny he invested. We, we may not live to see God's final plan. We certainly can't see any farther than right here, this moment. But I think when we get home, we'll look back and God will say, here's what I was up to. We'll say, wow, it was worth it all. So when the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, yet keep rejoicing in God our Savior. In Him we have our joy, our purpose, and our tomorrows.